mentioned last week, we're going to start a series through the book of Hebrews. And I don't know how many weeks it will take. We're just going to do a verse-by-verse study through the book. Um, This morning, I'd like to just do a flyover, if you will, of the entire book of Hebrews, give us some basic principles that can guide us as we do this study, and so that as we go through the book, we will kind of have an understanding of some of the basic principles that are throughout the entire book. Um, These are kind of like threads. If you sew something together, you have, you know, some basic threads, and we can look at the scriptures, and we can see some threads that go from Genesis to Revelation, just some basic principles or things that kind of tie everything together and make it work. Um, In Hebrews, there's some principles that tie everything together and and make it work so that we can understand it and and comprehend it and and learn from it and grow from it as well. Um, The theme, the title of my message this morning is A New Day and uh, an introduction into the book of Hebrews. And if you want to turn into chapter number three, that's that's where we will start this morning. Okay, Hebrews, um, Hebrews is an offer, if you will, a new offer of rest for God's people. Um, it's an offer of rest that the Old Testament Levitical covenant or Mosaic covenant or covenant of the law was not able to fulfill. Um, people were not able to enter into God's rest through the law. Um, ultimately, the law just led to greater works, to more difficult toil to to more failure. Um, When you place yourself underneath the law, you're never going to succeed. There will never be any rest. There'll never be any peace or comfort in life if you place yourself under the law. However, under grace, the opposite is true. Under grace, there should be this extraordinary restfulness. Uh, There should be an extreme peace of heart and mind that the Bible talks about in Philippians 4 that Christians have a peace that passes understanding. It's not something that we um, comprehend in our own thinking. We can imagine from a human perspective, but there's a certain level of internal peace that a Christian has based upon the fact that they understand that they are one with God through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes everything in life um, we understand that God is sovereign in all of those things. We, we sang about that, how that God knows everything. He knows our, um, uh, Darren talked about how that he's always thinking about things in the future. For me, it's always things in the past. I don't live two days in front. I live two days behind. I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm going to tell on you girls this morning. So I'm, I'm living in Friday still. We played our last basketball game. Our girls played their last basketball game of the season. We lost by three in overtime, and I'm still figuring out ways that we could have won that game. (laughs) So I I am still two days behind because I am still working through that. But God has taught me so much about that and and the, the reason why my mind goes back to trying to figure those things out and trying to figure out ways and, uh, and it's really convicting because I, I, I want to be a person that rests in his sovereignty, even in those moments where we think we could have done something different and it would have ended differently. And I teach the girls, and you know, at, at the end of the game, I'm like, you know what, girls, God is sovereign in these things. We lost for a reason, and there's a lesson to be learned, and I'm like preaching these things to them, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's like, it's easy to preach them, but not always easy to live them. But, but God is sovereign in, the, in, in, in every little thing, in every little aspect of our lives, the small details, um, the small events, the, the wins and the losses, the, the successes and the failures. God is sovereign in all of those things. And within those things, are, there's lessons to learn. There are praises to be given to God. And there are times where we stop and we, we don't understand what God is doing, but we just say, Lord, I just trust and I know that you're doing something for a reason. And, and we walk away and we become more like Christ and we're able to rest in our failures. How many of us struggle to rest in our failures? Okay, that's probably the more difficult one, but we also learn to rest in our successes as well. Rest in his sufficiency, rest in his grace, honor and praise him. So in, this, in, in Hebrews, we have that offer, if you will, of this rest. It's a new day, it's a, it's a, a, a new way in which they can enter into that rest. 
Isaiah in 30, in verse 15, the Bible says, For thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in resting, you will be saved. The Lord is offering this rest to the children of Israel, even in the Old Testament, through through, through the law, which obviously we know never brought rest because it was, it was not meant to bring rest. It was meant to bring toil and meant to bring difficulty so that when we face, at the end of the day, when we stand in the presence of the law and we feel condemned and we feel that failure, we can then run to the one who is able to give us the rest, the one who is able to bring about salvation to us, that true rest. He says, in returning and in rest you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You were, not, you were not willing to rest. You were not willing to be quiet. Again, because these things were not meant to bring that quietness, but they were meant to bring toil so that we could ultimately find rest in Jesus Christ our Lord. As we study through the book of Hebrews, um, if you have time in your own uh, studies to go and look at the book of Leviticus as well, I know it's not the most exciting book in the Bible, but it is very uh, a great parallel in studying and understanding the book of Hebrews is to understand the book of Leviticus and all the different um, ceremonies that the Jewish people performed and, and carried out in, in, in obedience to the Lord and how that none of those things brought uh, satisfaction or rest and, and none of those things... Um, brought them into the right standing with God permanently, although there was a, a temporary impact of those things in those men's lives. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus Christ as a man. It's about his physical body. It's about him being that perfect sacrifice, that perfect substitute for man's sin so that they could enter into that rest. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, the Bible says, Consequently, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And just a few verses later, he, said, he says, Sacrifices and offerings you take no pleasure in those things. But he says, But a body you have prepared for me. So the emphasis of the book of Hebrews is on Jesus Christ the man. His, the, the, the accomplishments that he fulfilled in his human as a, as, a, as a man, as a human being. And Jesus Christ, we know, was, was fully God and fully man. Hebrews chapter number three. Let me just give you a little bit of a background on, on three and four. Um, again, the reason why I called it a new day is because it's a new offer of this rest that they are, the Jewish people can enter into. It's a, a new offer of this rest for them. And it's... it's, um, it's, it's Really, it's defined by this day, and this day is so important. The term day is important throughout the book of Hebrews, and especially in these two chapters. And the, the emphasis is, is that this is an offer of God that has, that has no, um, no guarantee that it's going to last forever. The offer is not guaranteed to, to continue to go on. And in other words, today is the day of salvation. This is the accepted time, that when we're, we're offered to enter into God's rest, that we, we accept that offer that we embrace that offer. And we don't embrace that offer tomorrow, but we embrace that offer today. It's interesting, in, in, in the Christian life, it's easy to say, you know, I'll rest tomorrow, Lord. And the Lord says, no, rest today. The offer of this rest that he's introducing or reintroducing to the children of Israel is an, is an offer for today. It is what the Lord desires for us today. It is what we should be embracing now and today. He says in um, verse number seven of chapter number three, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He goes on to say in verse number 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort everyone, ex exhort one another every day as long as, as long as, as it is called what? As long as it is called today. He said, exhort everyone as long as it is called today. We can't, we can't be looking at what, ha what tomorrow has for us. We can't be looking at what yesterday has for us. He says, he says, exhort each other. Exhort each other to embrace this truth. Embrace this rest that we can have and embrace it, not tomorrow and not yesterday, but embrace it today. 
Embrace the rest that we can have with the Father through and in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you skip down a few verses in verse number 15, as it is said, today, again, that term used strongly to to emphasize the, the timeliness of this offer, of this calling. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. I think sometimes we get this mindset that we're going to be like the thief on the cross and we're going to kind of just go through life and live however we want to and when we're on our deathbed, we're going to come to Jesus for salvation and he's going to save us and deliver us. And, and folks, listen, there, there is no doubt that that can happen. I mean, the thief on the cross is a perfect example of that does happen, but, but we, we need to not presume, presume on God that that is going to be what happens. There are people who die in this world not, not knowing that they're going to die. They die accidentally. They, they, they die not knowing that death is, is, is coming to them. They have no knowledge that death is going to happen. They, they should not presume that they're going to be aware of when they're going to die. They should embrace what Jesus Christ is offering them now. Chapter four and verse number one says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still, still stands. In other words, that promise is not going to be there. That offer is not going to be there forever. While this promise is still there, while this offer is still there, while the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart's door, while Jesus is calling you, while God the Father is bringing you, embrace what Jesus Christ has done for us. He goes on in that verse to say, let us fear lest any of us should seem to fail to reach it. He goes on down in verse number seven of chapter number four. He says again, he appoints a certain day, saying today through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And that day is the day that we live in. It's, it's maybe not even necessarily a day, but a season. We live in this season of grace. We live in this, this offer of rest through and in Jesus Christ. And we know that it that is, is seasonal because Romans chapter number 11 talks about the, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the full number of the Gentiles comes in and embraces Jesus Christ, that that season is going to end and there's going to be a transition or a change. Apostle Paul tells us today is the day of salvation. Today is the offer of salvation for those who are under the preaching of his word and hear the gospel message. It's a new day. It's a new offer. It's a new way. No longer do we have to obey and submit to the rules and regulations that are written on tablets of stone to gain God's favor for a season, but now we can have God's favor forever in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The audience that is mentioned in this book And it's important to know who the audience is so that when you're reading it and studying it, you can get an idea of of possibly who the writer or who the author is talking to. And we don't know who the author is. There are a number of different assumptions on who the author of Hebrews was. And we're just going to um, say that we don't know. MacArthur said this, and I thought it was kind of valuable. He said, it's interesting that the Lord gives us a book written entirely about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and he doesn't tell us who the author is. And his comment was is that uh, maybe we should just focus on him as the author. Not John MacArthur, but the Lord. (laughs) You guys got that. We don't know who the author is, but here are some of the things that we don't. It is not only applicable to the Hebrew people, but it is written to the Hebrew people. Okay? The Hebrew people were the main focus, but we want to we note something about the Hebrew people. What were the Hebrew people known for? And this is where we can see the, the application applying to us. The Hebrew people were known for their religiosity. 
okay, the, the deep religious ceremonies and sacraments and those types of things, that's what the Hebrew people were known for. So we can, we can kind of see now, okay, so, so here's what they were known for, that being a Hebrew person or a Jewish person was not the problem, but finding your, finding your rest in some kind of a system, that is a problem, and that's, that applies to us today. That's where we can find ourselves within this text is that we are also a, a people that are prone to religion, to religiosity, to ceremonies and sacraments, to thinking that God favors us because we've done certain good deeds or, or whatever, or we're, uh, we've done this or that, therefore God loves us in a special way. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. So the Hebrew people in which it's written to, the reference is not just to the Hebrew people by, by their genealogies, but more the Hebrew people by their religion. Okay, they were built, all of their system um, was built on externals and not built on internals. The gospel is not built on externals, but the gospel is built on the internals. So we see how it can, make, it can be applied to us. The book um, would apply to any legalistic, externally focused religion. And other books of the Bible, such as Romans and Galatians, deal with these same themes, uh, except written to the Gentile people. It's written, number two, to the unbelieving Jews, those who have, those who have heard the gospel but have rejected it. Turn with me to chapter number two of this book. The Bible says in verse number one, therefore we must pay more, much closer attention in what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just uh, retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And this is talking about people who have rejected the gospel, who have heard the gospel, who, but who have denied the gospel. People who refuse to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ based upon or built around their, their uh, uh, love with their religious system. In other words, there's a, a new and a better way, and that is through Jesus Christ, but this, these Jewish people were unwilling to accept Jesus Christ because, because Jesus Christ uprooted their system. Jesus says in, in the Gospels that, that the, the disciples are pointing out to him the beauty of the temple and all of those things that were a, a part of the religious system of the, of the Hebrew people. And Jesus says, in, in three days, this will all be destroyed. Not one, one stone will stand upon another stone. And then it will be raised again. It wouldn't be raised again in, in a physical building, but it would be raised again in his body. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter number 10. It is so important that we understand as we read through this book that there are unbelieving uh, Hebrew people or Jewish people and there are unbelieving Christians today, or not unbelieving Christians, but un unbelieving people who are in the church. There are unbelieving religious people. There are people who are building their, the foundation of their salvation on some works that they have done. The Lord says that we must be careful that this doesn't become a foundation for us because even while we build on a religious system, lest we build on Jesus Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 10 and verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately or willfully, as other versions say, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for our sins. In other words, if we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and we hear that salvation comes through him and we deliberately continue to live a lifestyle of sinfulness and rejecting the deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ, there is no other way. There is no other hope. There is no other alternative. Jesus Christ is truly the only way to salvation Verse 31 of this same chapter says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And then in chapter number 12 and verse 15, the Bible says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. 
This is written to the lost, to the lost Jewish people, the lost Hebrews, or the ones who have heard the gospel and have forsaken it. It's also written to those who are believing Hebrews, those who have embraced the gospel, and it's written to encourage them. You'll find all throughout the book of Hebrews this idea of don't slip, don't fall away, don't slide backwards. You find the idea in, um, through, in, in the book, you find the idea of, of, uh, of growing, maturing in the Lord, maturing in the scriptures, not being like those babies, I think it's chapter number five and six, not being like an infant who was people or ignorant Jewish people, those who did not know the gospel. You'll find, especially between chapters eight and 10, you'll find a great deal of instruction about the significance of Jesus. And not just the significance of Jesus, but the significance of Jesus as it relates directly to the Old Testament law and the Old Testament ceremonies, and how those Old Testament ceremonies and that Old Testament law wasn't meant to ever satisfy, it was meant to point to something. And you'll find the, the idea of shadow throughout the book of Hebrews, the, the foreshadowing, or these things were meant to be a shadow of, of the real thing, which is Jesus Christ. And all the sacrifices that you see in Leviticus and all the ceremonies that you see in Leviticus, they were never meant to be the real thing. They were just meant to be a, a shadow to point to something that was the real thing. And all of them were meant to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there, there was this, a group of just ignorant Christians and there was, there's just learning and training and instruction that are, that's given about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that they can understand that Jesus Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus Christ is satisfactory. Jesus Christ is satisfying. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. So this is the audience. The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. It's just very simple, Jesus is better. Jesus is better, and we'll go through a list of things that Jesus is better than, but basically Jesus is better. And you can put anything that you want after that phrase, but Jesus is better. That's the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is more significant. Jesus is more satisfying. Jesus is more sovereign. Jesus is more supreme. Jesus is more. Jesus is better. The, the idea of it is, is that we can read through the book of Hebrews and let, and, and let all of these things that are surrounding us, all of these ceremonies and sacraments and laws, let all of them become in the peripheral vision because our, our eyes are focused on the one who fulfills those things. We get to see and know the one who, who, for whom these things were meant to point. It, it, it is sad that people would take the shadow and begin to worship the shadow and when the real thing comes, they continue to worship the shadows. We get to see Jesus. We get to know Jesus. We get to know the one for whom all of these things were meant to point. Listen to what he says in verse uh, chapter number two. The Bible says it has been testified somewhere. I like the phrase that it's been testified somewhere. What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, however, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We understand that. Not everything is in subjection to man. We, we get that picture. But here, here is where the rubber meets the road. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. In other words, our, our focus is not on all of these things. Our focus is on Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one through whom and to whom all things are under his feet, the one who is sovereign over all things. We see him who is sovereign. We see him who is sufficient. We see him who is significant. Jesus is better. Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46, the Bible talks about the pearl of great price and the treasure that's uh, found in the field and then is hidden. 
so that they can have it. The pearl of great price, the man goes and sells all that he has and he buys that pearl in the field. He sells all that he has and he buys that field and he goes and he has that treasure. It's a picture of who Jesus Christ is and his, and his sufficiency and significance. In Matthew 10, verse 37 through 39, Jesus says, if you love father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you love brothers and sisters more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you love your own life more than me, you are not worthy of me. The emphasis is not that we're to hate our own lives or to hate our mother and our father, our brothers and our sisters. The emphasis is we are to see Jesus as most significant. We are to see Jesus as supreme and superior. That our love for Jesus must cause and and be viewed as, as... When compared to our love for other things, it must be seen as hatred because of how much we love and exalt Jesus. That's what this book is about. It's about seeing Jesus for who he is. He is better. Chapter one, the scriptures teach us that Jesus is better than the angels and the prophets. Chapters three teaches us that Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter four teaches us that Jesus is a better high priest. Chapter seven, that Jesus offers a better hope. Also chapter seven, that Jesus brings forth a better covenant. Chapter eight, Jesus has better promises. Chapter nine, Jesus is a better tent. You say, what do you mean by a better tent? Listen, his body was better than the tent in which God dwelled in the Old Testament. He's a better tent in which He is God. In chapter nine, he is better sacrifices. Jesus is surer, stronger, more sufficient, more eternal, perfect, glorious, authoritative, gracious, supreme, satisfying, and he is sovereign. There is no one who is like him. No one can compare to him. When we think of ways to describe him, we cannot find words that describe who Jesus Christ is. He is so beyond our understanding, so beyond our ability to comprehend, for he is God. He stands alone. He is a sure foundation for our souls. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 6, the Bible, 25 and 26, the scripture says, who have I in heaven but you? And there is no one on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Philippians 3, 8, the apostle Paul says, I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth or value of Jesus Christ my Lord. And I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The book of Hebrews is all about the significance of Jesus. It's all about seeing him as being fully satisfying. It's all about seeing all of the Old Testament ceremonies as pointing to him so that we see Jesus and not these things. Psalm 18, verse one through three says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. What is the theme of Hebrews? It is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And through him we have a better hope. We have better promises. We have a better life. What is the opposition to this theme? We find all throughout this book, this opposition, this obstacle, if you will, things that stand in the way of you and I seeing Jesus as supreme. And there are things in your life today, there are things in my life today that stand in the way of of us seeing Jesus Christ as supreme. I think of what the Bible says in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, keep all the commandments. He says, I've done that from my youth up. And Jesus says to them, says to this young man, he says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then you can be my disciple. 
here's what Jesus was saying to him. He wasn't saying to this young man that by selling all that you have, you're going to now merit eternal life. What he was saying to him is, is that all the things that you have are an obstacle to, to you seeing me as more glorious than those things. There's a lot of things that compete with our pleasures. There's a lot of things that compete with our passions. There's a lot of things that compete with our ability to see Jesus Christ as supreme. There are things that are competing in your heart and mind today and tomorrow and throughout this week that will compete with you seeing Jesus Christ as better. Matthew 13, I said to you earlier, the pearl of great price and the, and the um, treasure found in the field, both of them, they go and they sell all that they have, don't they? Hebrews chapter number 12 and verse one, therefore, since we, have, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside. There are some things that we're gonna have to lay aside, that we're gonna have to put aside, lay aside, get rid of in our life in order that we might see Christ as utterly and ultimately supreme and sufficient. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter number four. Let's look at a few of these things in our text here that will help us understand what it means to let go of some things. While you're turning there, let me tell you a little story. There was once a, a young boy who was in the, an antique shop with his mother and he was roaming around through the antique shop and his mom would tell him, don't touch anything because if you touch something and you break it, then I'm gonna end up having to pay for it. And so she kept instructing him and instructing him and and then she kind of lost sight of him because she got focused on something over here, something really nice. And she, she goes and finds her son and she finds that he, she, he has gotten his hand caught in a priceless vase. And his hand is caught in this priceless vase and they're trying to get his hand out of this priceless vase and they're, they're trying to pull on it and they're trying to do everything that they can so that they don't damage the vase, but they get his hand out so that they can put it back up and they can sell it. And this, the, the store owner and the mom, they're just working they're just working um, with everything that they possibly can to get this kid's hand out. They're using soap and moisturizer and anything that they can to get this, hand, this kid's hand out. And they work it and they work it and they work it. But there is just no way that this kid's hand is going to come out of this priceless vase. So the decision is made that we can't, can't just leave his hand into this, in this priceless vase. So we've got, to, we've got to break this vase open so that we can, we can get his hand out. Because obviously we can't just leave it there. So again, they worked really hard to see again, can we maybe, maybe, his, maybe his hand is swollen a little bit and if we work a little bit harder and they work hard and there's just no way that they're gonna get this kid's hand out of this vase. So finally the decision is made and the, the owner goes back into the back and he gets this, a chisel and he comes out and they, and they, and they fret over it a little bit and, and he begins to hit on that priceless vase and, and the, bright, the priceless vase shatters and the kid pulls his hand out of that vase and he has a fist made like this. And his mom says, well, why do you have a fist made like that? And he goes to, she goes to open up his hand and there's a little penny in his hand that he had dropped into that vase and he reached down in there to get that penny out of that vase and he couldn't get his hand out. And the reason was is because he was holding on to a penny. And some of us are in that same boat when it comes to our Christian life. We're holding on to things that are keeping us from experiencing the true beauty and joy of being a follower of Jesus Christ and those things mean nothing. They're like holding on to a penny at the expense of a priceless vase. If we're going to experience the true nature of God, if we're going to experience the true beauty of Christ, if we're going to experience the true goodness of Christ, we're going to have to let go of some of our pennies and watch what Christ does in our life. Watch what he says in chapter number four. Verse number nine. The Bible says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, what has he left? What has he let go of? He has let go of the toil. He says, forever has entered God's rest, has rested from his works, even as God did from his. 
In other words, those things, those works that we do, those ceremonies and sacraments that we perform, that we're holding on to, that we're clinging to, hoping that somehow it's going to give us special favor with God, it's all it's going to do is keep us from experiencing the significance of Jesus. We've got to release those things. We've got to let go of those things. Our righteousness is will only and always be filthy rags in comparison to his righteousness. We must let go of our own righteousnesses. We must let go of our own works. We must let go of our own obedience to the law. We must let go of the law itself. We must let it go so that we can see Jesus. We can experience Jesus for who he is and what he accomplishes and what he does. We must let go of these things. Until we let go of these things, we will never see the value of Jesus. We must let go of the law. The Bible says in chapter number five at the end, he talks about them uh, needing milk because they're not mature. And he says, you should be mature by now, but you still continue to need milk. In chapter number six, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, there are certain milk things as Christians that we have to leave. We have to let go of them, that we might mature, that we might grow to see Jesus for who he is. Some of us see Jesus at the very basic level. We never move beyond it. We never experience him for all that his value is, for all of his significance, for all of his strength and power. Some of us live in the light of, yes, I've been forgiven for my sins, but we don't live in the light of, yes, I am free from my sins. There's more. We grow in knowing him. We grow in experiencing him and what he's capable of doing. We grow in seeing his extraordinary value. Chapter number seven and verse number 18 Go, go with me, just let's skip that verse, chapter number nine and verse number eight, or verse six. The, these, chapter number nine, verse one through eight is, is all the same thing. It talks about the first room in the tabernacle and the second room in the tabernacle. The first room in the tabernacle was, was where all of the, the priests were there and they made all the different sacrifices that were made daily. The second room in the tabernacle was the holy of holies in which the, the the high priest would enter once a year and make a sacrifice for our sins. Watch this, verse number eight. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, you have two rooms here. You have the holy place and you have the holy of holies. The holy places where where all of these ceremonies are taking place, all of these sacraments are taking place, all of these sacrifices are taking place on a daily basis. He says you cannot enter into the holy place until the first room has been destroyed or done away with. All of these sacraments and ceremonies have to be done away with before you can enter into the holy place in which we see when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he rent the veil in twain or he rent it in two from top to bottom so that we could enter into the presence of God. But listen to me, that room is not open to us as long as the first room is still open. As long as you're still living in light of the ceremonies and sacraments and the things that we do to gain God's favor, we cannot enter into the holy of holies and experience God's favor. That room is closed to us, but as long as that first room has been done away with, it is open to us because that first room is only done away with. The only way that the first room can be done away with is in and through Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of those things in that first room. So how do we enter into the second room? We come not through the first room, but we come through, we come through Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But as long as the first room is standing and all those sacraments and ceremonies are being performed in order to gain God's favor, we cannot enter into the holy room with the Lord. But once those things are removed, it's opened, and we can enter into that. He goes on to explain that further in the, in the um, 
Next verses, he says in verse number five, uh, verse number um, nine, according to these arrangements, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect us, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have been come, then through the great and more perfect tent that is his body, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, um, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We must let go of the old way. It is not the right way. There are several other things in this passage of scripture. Go with me to chapter number 11. In chapter number 11, you have the, you guys are familiar with it, you have the, 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 the hall of faith. Okay, watch what happens in this hall of faith. The Bible says in verse number seven, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events that, get, that were yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, was, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, Noah specifically preached for 120 years of something that, was, that had never been seen before. He gave up his reputation in order that he might have this faith or as a result of having this faith. He, he laid down his reputation so that he might have this faith or again as a result of this faith in what Christ Jesus or what God had promised him. Go to chapter number, uh, same chapter, verse number 11. Um, Verse number, go back to verse number eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went in a land, to the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham gave up his comforts. Abraham gave up his securities Abraham left all of those things so that he could go to a place that he didn't know where he was going and he lived in, in that place in tents. In other words, he didn't live in that place with all of the comforts that he had at home. He lived in a place where he was unknown, unrecognized and insignificant and he was uncomfortable in the sense of his provisions. In other words, this was a new place for him could have easily stayed where he was, but he had to leave the place that he was to get to the place that God was taking him. God might have a plan to take us somewhere, but we have to leave where we're at. He says in verse number 10, for he was looking forward to the city that had a foundation whose designer and builder is God. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He had to give up something that was very precious to him. Matter of fact, it was his own son. And not only was it his own son that he was getting ready to sacrifice on that altar, but it was also his, the one through whom all of the world would be blessed. It was his inheritance. Abraham had to be get, willing to give those things up in order. Listen, these things were sacrificed in order that we might see Jesus. These things were left behind in order that they might see him for who he is. Moses, in, in, in verse 25 and 26, Moses leaves the blessings of Egypt, leaves all of the things that he could have had in Egypt so that he could go to a place where he would suffer with his people. He says that he left the pleasures of sin or he, he refused the pleasures of sin for a season. Abraham or Moses sacrificed those things so that he might experience Jesus. And on and on throughout this chapter, at the end, it talks about, um, in verse 28, women received back the dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Some, that they might rise again uh, to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging and, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins and sheeps and goats, destitute, effect, uh, afflicted, um, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy. Why did they go through all of these things? Why did they experience all of these things? That they might see Jesus for who he is. That they might experience the sufficiency and the significance of Jesus, the theme of the book. 
There are many things that stand in our way of us seeing Jesus for who he is, for treasuring Jesus in such a way that is, he is worthy to be treasured. And these obstacles, these things that stand in our way, we must deal with them. Matthew 5 and verse 29 talks about lust, talks about plucking out eyes so that we might see Jesus. Talks about walking by faith and not by sight so that we might see Jesus. So the theme of this book is Jesus is better. The obstacles of us seeing that are are a number of different things and you might have your own special obstacle of being able to see Jesus for who he really is. We must walk away from those things. We must refuse to let those things hinder us from seeing Jesus for who he is. The last thing this morning is simply the process. How does the Lord, how does the Lord bring us to a place where these obstacles are removed and we get to see Jesus for who he is? How does the Lord accomplish that? And the book of Hebrews gives us the answer to this question as well. Again, maybe a third theme, if you will. Who is, the significance of Jesus is the first theme. The second one is the obstacles that stand in the way of seeing him for who he is. And the last one is, what is the process that Jesus puts us through so that we can see him for who he is? How does the Lord rid us of our idols? How does the Lord rid us of our idols? And the answer is simple. It is through suffering. The Lord rids us of our idols through suffering. The difficulties that we face in our life are not meant to cause us to question God. They're meant to cause us to treasure him. They're not meant to cause us to doubt his goodness. They're meant to cause us to trust his plan and his heart. Listen to what the Bible says in chapter number two and verse number 10. For it was fitting that he, it was right that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many, many sons to glory should make the founder of our salvation perfect through, he says it was right. It was, it was fitting that the founder of your salvation would be made perfect through suffering. Why is that fitting? Because you will be made perfect through suffering as well. You will be made mature through suffering. You will be made mature through difficulties and trials. You will begin to see Jesus as, as, as bright and glorious, not through the good times, but through the bad times. How many of us, I don't, how many of us, you like me, find myself on my knees in hard, serious prayer when I'm going through difficult times more than when I'm going through good times? I need Jesus in those moments. I need his light to shine down upon me. I need his goodness to be in my life. I need his grace and his mercy. I need him. It's not in the easy times, it's in the hard times. Watch what he says here, he doesn't stop there. He said, it's fitting, it's right that Jesus would be made perfect through suffering because we will be made perfect through suffering. And it says this, for he who sanctifies Jesus, right, Jesus sanctifies, right? He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, all have the same source. Therefore, verse 17, he made, he had to be made like the brothers in every aspect so that he might become a, a merciful and, and a, a faithful high priest in the services of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because of he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter five and verse eight, the Bible says that Jesus learned through suffering. Chapter 10, verse 23, 32 and 33 talk about salvation through suffering. Chapter 12, verse four through 11 talk about the fact that we are disciplined. We go through suffering. The endurance that we go through is for our sanctification. It is for our maturity and for our growth. Chapter number 12 In verse 26, if you'll read these two verses with me, we will close. He says this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, 
But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In other words, the Lord's gonna shake things, isn't he? Why is the Lord gonna shake things? Here's why the Lord is gonna shake things, and he's shaking things in your life. He's shaking things in my life. Why is the Lord going to shake things? He's going to shake things because those things that are unimportant and insignificant are gonna fall off when he shakes you. But that which is solid and that which is secure will remain. That's what he says here. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The Lord is going to shake us. The Lord is going to stir us. And the Lord is going to shake us again. He's going to put us through trials and tribulation. He's going to shake us in such a way that all of those things that are hindrances to us treasuring Christ are going to fall off. We're going to see them as worthless and insignificant so that we ultimately might see Jesus. Job experienced this in Job 42. He says at the end of this book, he says, after suffering for about a year of great trials and tribulation, he says, Lord, before I had, I had heard of you with my ears, but now I can see you with my eyes. As we journey through the book of Hebrews, let us be mindful of the fact, number one, Jesus is better. Number two, you have things in your life right now that cause you not to think Jesus is better. We all do. And number three, trials and tribulations, suffering, difficulty, and chastening help us remove those things that hinder us from seeing Jesus as better and cause us to see him for who he really is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this book. And we just really ran through it this morning, Lord, trying to get a little bit of an overview, a flyover of what's there. We just pray that you'll help us, Lord, to, as we break it down into bite-sized pieces the next several weeks, that you will bless it, that we will just gain such an extraordinary appreciation for who you are, such an amazing awe of your glorious character and nature. We will worship you and honor you as is fitting for you. We pray that you would help us to recognize and identify that we have areas of our life that ought not to be there that hinder that view and then be willing to face the difficulties in life to help, to help shed us of those things that we might see you as glorious. Please be with us as we go home this morning. Pray that you'd be honored and glorified through our lives. In Jesus Christ's name.